So please do join me in turning to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 as we pick up where we left off from last week and as we begin to turn to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer once again. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we do long to see your churches full so that your gathered people can sing your redeeming grace. And Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here this morning and we are hungry for the truth of your word. We are thirsty for what your word alone can do and satisfy. So Father, be pleased to feed us, enable us to see Jesus, enable us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's hard to believe we're at week 34 in our series. I think, I'm not sure when it's going to end, but of course this summer we'll break it up with our uh, annual summer series in the Psalms. But it's good to be in Acts where we're looking back at our history and we're moving forward in our mission. And I I think it goes without saying, but it needs to be said that each of these narrative accounts in Acts really do help us to better understand where we've been, who we are, and where we're going, and to what end are we here, and where is the church going? Um, Years ago, I don't know if he's still alive, but there's somebody out there named the Bible Answer Man, you know, who... who, uh, gets questions about the Bible and he answers them. I think it's kind of a Bible facts. Um, but, but to be sure, um, all of us have, have heard this uh, or something along these lines. Well, if you've got questions, the Bible's got answers. Uh, that, that's a yes and no, uh, I think, reality. It depends on the questions asked. And I, I think oftentimes folks ask questions along these lines. How, how do I do this? How do I do that? Um, it's the how-to. It's, it's seeing the, the Bible, God's Word, as um, kind of the handbook of life. And to be sure, there are instructions and commandments and guidance. And to be sure, it's, it's important to go to the owner's manual, uh, God's ownership of us. Uh, he created us. It's good to go to the owner's manual. But that's really not the, the primary uh, purpose of the scriptures. The scriptures, of course, revealing to us who God is, what our problem is, uh, how that problem is, is, is solved through the person and work of Jesus, that calling to faith and repentance. But uh, I, I want to draw our attention to the, to the why questions. The, the, the Bible helps us answer why are things the way they are? And, and in particular, why Am I fill in the blank? How would you, what question would you ask right now of God's word? Why am I blank? Now, of course, it's dangerous sometimes to revolve it around you. But occasionally it's good to ask a question like that. Why am I? And go to God's word for the answer. And We just sang a hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place, and verse 3 asks a great question. Why was I made 
to hear your voice and enter while there's room. When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why am I here? How did I get in here? Why me and not someone else? Have you ever asked that question? Why was I made to hear your voice? It's a great question to ask. And yes, the Bible does really provide an answer. And today's text will serve, I believe, to provide an answer to that question. But before we begin with verse 44, um, let's uh, back up a bit and review where we've been. Uh, Acts 13, you recall, begins that third phase of the gospel going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 13 shows us the start of Paul's first missionary journey, first from Antioch to the island of Cyprus and then over to Asia Minor where we find Paul and Barnabas and others today. In Acts 13, 1 through 12, we saw the church, the Holy Spirit, and missions. And, and the church uh, in Antioch and Syria. And we saw the Holy Spirit present, powerfully present in the church in Antioch in Syria, but also present and powerful on the mission field in Cyprus. We, we, we saw through uh, Paul's missionary work there that the proclamation of the gospel is a power encounter and that missions begins and ends in worship. It was from a worship service that the, mission, that the Holy Spirit spoke and, and commissioned and the church sent out Paul and Barnabas. And then when the proconsul came to faith in Christ, he joined with others who worship the Lord, the one who saves him. Last week, when we were in that long section from verses 13 to 43, we saw that we were free at last, free at last. It was Paul's inaugural um, sermon. The end of that section, verse 43, the grace of God, they exhorted them to continue in the grace of God, and it, it provided a, a helpful framework uh, to see the, the entire passage as, as uh, that we saw that the grace of God is made known through the history of Israel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. Look back with me at verse 38. Paul says this as he's wrapping up his sermon, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It was through this man, Jesus. It was by this man, Jesus, that there is forgiveness. And through that forgiveness comes freedom. Now today, what we're going to see is something that we saw earlier on Cyprus on an individual level. That is, bar Jesus reject the gospel, the word of God, the word of the Lord, and yet the proconsul Sergius Paulus accept or receive that word. We saw it on an individual level, and today in our text we're going to see it play out on a community level, now in Antioch, in Pisidia, in Asia Minor. Well, right in the middle of our text is one of the clearest and most direct statements having to do with the sovereignty of God and salvation in the entire New Testament. Testament. 
We see that in verse 48, and we will get there uh, shortly. Let's step back and, and recognize what we've already started to see in Acts, that the gospel, this word of the Lord that is being taken out now to the end of the earth is good news for everyone. Good news for everyone. In the first century, when you talked about everyone from the perspective of those in Palestine, those Israelites, as you look out, everyone means Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek. Either those um, that have a special relationship with Yahweh, the Lord, and then everyone else. Paul, in his first letter to the Roman church, says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what we're going to see in Acts as we go forward is Paul is going to every time go to the Jew first, but then to the Greek. And it's not like it's a, a, an absolute thing that... He's gone to the Jews, there's a rejection, and now he'll only go to the Greeks. As we travel with Paul on his missionary journeys, we will see he always, if not he most often, if not always, starts in the synagogue, starts with the Jews, but then moves to the Greek, moves to the Gentile. There's an order, there's a priority. Paul goes to the Jews first, and then he turns to the Gentiles over and over again. Well, join with me as I read verses 44 through the end of the chapter. The next Sabbath, so just a week has passed, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, our text is going to help us understand why the gospel is rejected by some and yet accepted by others. And then our text is going to help us understand the attitude of believers, those who accept the gospel. So our text, first of all, helps us to understand why the gospel is rejected by some. And I'm going to say this knowing that there's obviously exceptions, but rejected predominantly by the Jews. Now remember, Acts is all that Jesus Christ continues 
to teach and to do now in the church founded by the apostles and and animated, as it were, by the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is going to continue to teach. Jesus is going to continue to act now by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember the parable that we just heard read as our New Testament reading, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the two sons. Um, Jesus, in helping to folks to understand what the kingdom of God is like, he would say often, the kingdom of God is like. And if you haven't already read last month's Table Talk magazine, February, the parables of Jesus, I encourage you to read them. Every single article is outstanding. The parable, the parables of Jesus. Now remember, the, the story, the parable of the prodigal son the, the, the younger son is empty, right? He's run out of food. He's run out of funds. He realizes that hired hands have, have um, something to, to eat, and so he, he runs back to his father. He's empty. He's empty, and he runs back. And yet, the older brother who stays, the elder brother who stayed, he's, he's filled with something. He's not empty. He, he's full. And even though the word doesn't appear What is happening is the older brother, the older son, is jealous. He's jealous. He's envious. He's mad and angry because this this younger brother, this young son that went off and blew it all, the father is welcoming him back and the father is throwing a, a festival and a feast. And the older brother complains, why didn't you do that for me? The father explains to that older son that you're always with me and everything I have is yours. And that parable is interesting because it ends with the celebration and the feast of this younger son who's been lost but now found and the older brother who doesn't join in the celebration. It's as if he's standing outside the door looking in. There's the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, where the invitations go out, but everybody comes up with excuses why they can't come to the banquet. So what does Jesus say? Then go out to the highways and byways and bring in the poor and the destitute and others. Bring them in because I've set a table for a feast. There's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. You know the story of the the workers hired at the beginning of the day and promised a wage and every hour that goes by more workers are hired. And then at the end, for the last hour, the worker is hired. And when he gets paid first, the ones that were hired earlier in the day are so excited they are going to get So much more money than was promised, and yet when they get the same, they begrudge the generosity of God. They can't see that God has the right to do whatever he wants with his money in the hiring of the workers. Why is the gospel rejected by some? Just keep those parables in mind as we see the Jewish response Notice in verse 
um, 43, but the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, they're contradicting what Paul is saying, they're reviling him, and then Paul and Barnabas speak boldly and they say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. What we see here is the Jews are, are being described as judging themselves, not Paul, not Barnabas judging them, but the Jews judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. Now there's an ironic twist here, because the Jews are finding that the freeness of the gospel to all, to the good, to the bad, to the religious, to the irreligious, increasingly to the Gentiles. At first, in the, in the first week, there was pretty good reception. Jew and Gentile both kind of received the word. And yet now, a week later, as the word is being talked about and spoken about, and who knows what is actually going on between the two Sabbath days, Gentiles are, are, are flocking. We read, again, the, almost the whole city, predominantly Gentile, some Jewish, obviously there's a synagogue there, gather to hear the word. But the irony is this, the, the, the freeness of the gospel, the, the forgiveness that leads to freedom, the, the trust in Jesus and Jesus alone is, is threatening. Because the irony of the gospel is this, the only way to be worthy or to be fit is to admit that you are unworthy, you're unfit. They, they considered themselves worthy or merited it, then they're not worthy. They've judged themselves. If they think they're worthy, they've, they're actually unworthy. They've judged themselves. Uh, the gospel, the New Testament makes clear, is so abundantly free that as one writer puts it, all you need is need. It reminds me of what we were going to sing before the sermon. Come ye sinners. Um, uh, 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 that, that line, and I wish I had it up here, I thought I had it uh, in memory, but it's um, all you need to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. To acknowledge your need, that, as it were, makes you worthy of the gospel. And yet, they've judged themselves as unworthy. The, they have no one to blame but themselves. And this is an important point. Why are the Jews rejecting? Why? They have judged themselves as being unworthy of the free gospel. Now why, after Paul makes that statement, does he say, we're going to turn to the Gentiles? He quotes Isaiah 49, 6. Paul and Barnabas are recognizing their calling to the Gentiles. They're using this scripture to support why it is they're going to move on from the Jews and embrace the mission to the Gentiles. Remember from Isaiah 49, what we heard read earlier, Israel, God's people, were to be a light for the nations. Some of you were with us a few years ago in uh, December of 2016. There were the servant songs of the Messiah. Where in chapter 42, the servant 
was presented. In chapter 49, the servant was sent. In chapter 50, the servant was obedient. And in chapters 52 and 53, the servant was victorious. Well, here in chapter 49 of Isaiah, Israel is to be a light to the nations, but in particular, the servant of the Lord, Jesus. And turn with me to Luke 2. Acts written by Luke. Children, who's Luke written by? Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 27 through 32. Because this is not the first time in the New Testament that a light to the Gentiles is mentioned. You may remember that Jesus is presented in the temple. And there's a man, Simeon, who's been waiting And we read in verse 27, and he, that is Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So right around the time of Jesus' birth, when he's presented in the temple, Jesus is identified as the one who is going to be light to the Gentiles. But here, in Acts 13, Paul, through what he would later speak about in terms of union with Christ and the mission of Jesus being picked up by the mission of the apostles, Paul and Barnabas are servants of the Lord. There's Israel was to be a servant, to shine the light. There was Jesus, who is the light, to bring it to the world. And then here they are as servants of the Lord, light to the Gentiles. And yet, what do we see? When they are to the Jews, they're they're not light, are they? No, they're reviled, they're contradicted. And as you heard the description in verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men. They stirred up, what? Persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And what? They drove them out. They forcibly, the scriptures don't give us the details, they forcibly pushed them out of that area, and that's why Paul and Barnabas head on to Iconium. You see, the messengers are being rejected. Why? The messengers are being rejected because the message is being rejected. So what we have here is a clear rejection of the word of the Lord. You see that Three times, word of the Lord. You see it once, the word of God. It's a clear rejection of the gospel. But what we have also in our text is not only a rejection of the gospel, but also a reception of the gospel. And so our text helps us better understand, secondly, why the gospel is accepted by by others, in particular here by the Gentiles. I want to read again verse 48. So, So they've just heard Paul quote Isaiah 49. And their response is this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life 
believed. I want us to spend a few moments now thinking about the relationship between, as it were, God's appointment and human belief. The relationship between God's gift and our choice. Notice that the text does not say, those who believed were appointed. It does not say, those who believed were appointed. What does it say? I'd like everyone, if you do have a Bible, to look down at your Bible to the end of verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Those who were appointed, believed. Again, those who were appointed, believed. Now, if, if anyone responds positively to the gospel, if anyone receives the word, uh, accepts the word, it's why? Why? There are a lot of answers, but here our text says it very clearly and unmistakably. Why? There was a prior appointment. My friends, here is the high mystery of God's sovereignty and providence. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Moses is saying that about what God has revealed. And what has God revealed here? Verse 48, again. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul in Romans chapter 11 says this. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The high mystery of God's sovereignty and providence. Now, we're not singing out of the Trinity hymnal today, but I would like you to take out the Trinity hymnal and turn with me to page 850. Most of you know this, that in addition to the hymnal of hymns, there's also uh, some scripture passages from Psalms, but there's also our doctrinal standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the um, Shorter Catechism, along with the Apostles and Nicene Creed. And on page 850 is chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession, and it's entitled, Of God's Eternal Decree. Of God's Eternal Decree. And I want to read just how it begins and how it ends. Uh, reading uh, the first and the last sections. The first section, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Those are a lot of words to say that God is king. God rules. God is in charge. God ordains. It's from beginning to end in scripture. And here is how this section or this chapter ends, section 8. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination 
think with me at verse 48, appointed. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Did y'all hear that? What is this high mystery of God's sovereignty of providence in particular predestination? What does it bring about? Praise and reverence and admiration of God and humility, diligence and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey, to all those that believe the gospel, the promises of the gospel. There's another hymn in the Trinity hymnal that we could have sung, but it's kind of a hard hymn to sing. It's hymn number 850, excuse me, hymn number 466. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. So imagine these believers, these, these people gathered to hear the word. And you'll notice some come to faith. They believe. And, and here this hymn says this. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. I was found of thee. It's the recognition of the appointment. Yes, there was belief. But, before the be- but behind the belief is the recognition of the divine appointment. So what we see already in this text is, who do we need to blame And who do we need to thank? We see jealousy, Jews filled with jealousy. And what do we see? We see Gentiles filled with what? Joy and the Holy Spirit. Whereas the Jews had no one to blame. They judged themselves. They had no one to blame but themselves. The Gentiles had no one to thank but God. Whereas jealousy led the Jews to reject The Gentile's acceptance leads to joy. So you have jealousy, you have the work of God, and you have joy. Well, in addition to helping us better understand why the word of the Lord or the gospel is rejected as well as accepted, our text helps us finally to identify the attitude of the believer, the orientation of the believer. Um, Look with me at how those who believe, how do they view the word of God? Do you see in verse 48 at the beginning? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? Luke doesn't say that they're rejoicing in and and glorifying the Lord. Uh, Obviously they are, but in particular what? The word of the Lord, this message, this gospel, this 
freedom that comes through forgiveness. The attitude of a believer, the orientation of a believer to the word of God is one of rejoicing and glorifying. My friends, just ask yourself this question today. What's your attitude toward the word of God? I mean, sure, on given days it waxes and wanes. A friend used to tell me, have you ever opened up your Bible and and dust comes out? What's your attitude toward the word of God? It's his revelation of himself. The word is what? Life-giving. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. What's your attitude? What's my attitude, my orientation to the word of God in particular? We see it among believers here. But there's also an attitude that we see toward life in general. The word in particular, but life in general. Look at verse 52. Look how the chapter ends. And when, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When I first read that and I'm understanding it, I'm thinking, of course, Paul and, and Barnabas, as they leave, they're going to be filled with joy that they're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. But you know, that's not what the text says. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those left behind. Those who have come to faith in Christ and are left behind. And those who are watching Paul and Barnabas be sent away. What is their attitude toward life? You see, whereas jealousy leads the Jews to reject, acceptance by the Gentiles leads to joy. I've quoted this song before. It's appropriate here as well. What kind of joy is this? What kind of joy do the disciples have here in Pisidian or Antioch of Pisidia? What kind of joy is this that counts it? A blessing to suffer because indeed they will. What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. Did you hear it? It's the message from the sermon on the first Sabbath. Through... Through belief in this man and through Jesus, by Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins and freedom from everything that the law of Moses could not do for you. This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. And before we move on, let's note once again the balance of our text. There's a dual emphasis here on divine sovereignty and human responsibility, divine election, and human response, God's divine appointment, and the human or man's response. You've heard it said before, it's worth repeating, God gives us faith, but we do the believing. God opens ears, but we do the hearing. God opens eyes, but we do the seeing. So, ask yourself this question, these two questions. Who are you going to blame and who are you going to thank? Who are you going to blame and who are you going to thank?
Well, let's wrap up. Why was this written? Why do we have this narrative preserved for us in chapter 13 of Acts, of the New Testament, of the Bible, of the Holy Scriptures? Why? Well, in Romans, Paul writes this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, of course, Paul is talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, but the principle applies as well for the New Testament. It was written for us in former days, and I think there are two areas of encouragement for all of us. First, there's the encouragement of the assurance of eternal life, right? Look with me at verse 48 once again. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why John's first letter was written. And why did John write his gospel? So that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, what? They would have life in his name. The encouragement of assurance of eternal life. We see that in our text. And finally, we see the encouragement of confidence in the word. Confidence in the word for ourselves and confidence for the word in terms of us sharing the gospel. You see, the gospel The success or failure, if you want to look at it like that, into our proclamation of the gospel does not depend on us. But oh, my friends, we are called to go. To go to our families, to go to our neighborhoods, to go to our workplaces. For some of us sitting in here, you may be called to go and take the gospel to the end of the earth. And we have confidence, not in our presentation, not in our ability. We have confidence that the word will do the work. You see, confidence in in God's sovereignty, in salvation, that doesn't hinder evangelism. That's really the only reason we could evangelize, knowing that there are some known to God but not known to us who are appointed for eternal life. The Christian has the encouragement of assurance and the Christian has the encouragement of confidence. Assurance of eternal life and confidence in the word of God. And earlier in our Sunday school lesson, Sinclair Ferguson ended his lesson by sharing something that he says he says often to end a sermon when he doesn't know what to say. He said something like this, isn't it glorious to be a Christian. It's a great way to end us today. Isn't it glorious to be a believer? Oh, my friends, do you know what's the evidence that someone has been appointed? They believe, and their life produces a life of fruit of being connected to Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
we admit that your word sometimes, uh, it's not hard for us to understand, it's we don't want to understand. But Father, I thank you for this greatly assuring word that those who believe are those whom you have caused to believe. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us that do believe, we would give thanks to you. And that because we recognize that you are the author and finisher of our faith, our lives would be decorated with with assurance and humility and confidence. Knowing that those whom your son rescues and brings to saving faith, he will lose none of them. Oh, Father, help us even this day to recognize how glorious it is to have been appointed to believe. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.